The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning's uh, scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 11, verses 29 to 41. Please stand in reverence for the reading and hearing of God's word. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment and the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came to this earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but understand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the light of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness." If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. When Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You remember that movie Smokey and the Bandit? <laughs> Maybe you don't, and that's probably better. Um, you know, there's this line, a long way to go and a short time to get there. <laughs> that's what we're doing this morning. Um, we're, we're resuming our series in Luke. Uh, we began this in August the 15th, and it was a, it's the beginning in August uh, of a two-year journey in, in the writings of Luke in the New Testament. We're, this year, we're going to concentrate on Luke and the gospel, and that particular gospel is showing how the, the, the mission of Jesus was established uh, through his life and ministry. And Luke's gospel tells us in the first chapter that, that, that he had written an orderly account uh, so that we would know, so that we would have certainty about who Jesus was. The book of Acts is, is the expansion of the church, the, the mission as it goes forward and, and kind of taking Acts 1, 8, that verse from Jer Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And we're going to look at that in the, the, the months to come. But today we're resuming. Uh, we're, we're picking back up in what manner of speaking of where we left off. Uh, it's a big chunk from verse 14 to 54 is kind of where we were budgeting to look at this weekend. And the reality is we simply can't do justice to that uh, size of text. So we're looking at a particular selection within that larger section and what we're going to do today is I'm going to reference back and forth. Uh, one of the things you'll see in this particular passage, and maybe you saw it or noticed it as Jim was reading it, 
is there, there's a lot of biblical allusions, uh, references to, to Old Testament things. Uh, if you're new to the church, if, if you're uh, hearing names like Jonah and the Queen of the South and, and they don't quite resonate with you, that, that's okay. Uh, our goal is that we want you to um, connect with them this morning, and I'll do my best to, to give you some context for those. But, but the, the Bible is one big story. It's a story, God's story of how He has pursued His good and, and loving uh, kindness, or He has put His good and loving kindness on His creation. And that creation rebelled, that Adam and Eve sinned, and they were removed from the garden east of Eden, and Jesus didn't give up on them. And it's a story of covenant love and faithfulness and, and being faithful when we're unfaithful. And so there's a lot of beauty in that and in what we're going to look at this morning. In our particular section, we're going to look at really two things, kind of the big ideas of where we're going. We're going to look and, and, and diagnose a problem. That problem is the hardness of hearts and spiritual blindness. So we're going to diagnose this problem, and then we're going to declare the gospel, because that's what Jesus is doing as he talks about these particular signs. So we're going to diagnose and declare. The idea is to be drawn to repentance and then have the, 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 the confession, the, the truth of the gospel kind of spoken over us. And the reason is so that we would believe, uh, that we would be transformed by the power of the gospel. But the struggle is that we all know is it simply isn't that easy. It just simply isn't that easy. We, we long for this transformation to be full and unencumbered and, and us to just grow but we know that if we've walked with Jesus any length of time, whether it be days or years, that it can be hard. And so we want to learn from that because what we need is our hearts to be renewed. We need to be refreshed. We need the, the beauty and the brilliance of the gospel to be restored so that we can pursue him more faithfully. So with that, let's just dive in and begin to establish this context as we're diagnosing um, the, the presence of hard hearts. We begin in verse 14, uh, which we didn't read, but in this it says that there is a man who is mute, and this man is demon-possessed. Jesus comes, he encounters this man, and he casts out the demon. I dare believe that if I were to do that, I would have your undivided attention. That, that if someone were to perform such a sign as this that maybe you would listen but I say maybe because the reality is today it isn't any different than it was for Jesus and what happens in this particular instance is Jesus casts out this demon and immediately the people assign the miraculous act to Satan they said he casts out demons by Beelzebub Others dismiss it. And in verse 15, it says that they wanted to test him and kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now, if someone is demon-possessed and someone comes alongside them and restores them, I would say that's sign enough. 
even if you just t- take a, a further step back and just look at Luke's gospel, we've seen the, the sight restored to the blind. We've seen the lame walk. Jesus has performed a number of miraculous and marvelous signs. He's calmed the storm. He's walked on water. These are all within this gospel. And what does it tell us the people uh, do? It tells us that they don't believe. They simply don't believe. And, and, and they, the struggle with this is that even if they were given 10 million signs, that still wouldn't guarantee their belief. You see, what they're doing is what we so often do. They're looking for something in addition to Jesus to satisfy them. They're looking for something in addition to Jesus to satisfy them. They're saying, Jesus, you're great and all, but go do something else. For some of us, it happens in the, the form of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a doubt. We are intellectually curious. We want to have intellectual integrity. We, we hear things in our classrooms at school or in the university setting or, or on whatever internet um, news syndicate or blog you happen to read. And in that, we, we, we hear these different trains of thought and people who are offering different ideas. And what we do is we assign a certain value to those. And many of those folks dismiss Jesus. They give us a host of reasons to say that, that you shouldn't believe. Many in, in this passage just outright dismiss him. Those first folks in verse 14 and 15 simply say, it can't be so. They just outright reject Jesus. Others, others it's not maybe a, a blatant dismissal, um, but, but it's, it's the result of a distraction. You see, that word distraction in its root means to be drawn apart or to lose sight of. To be drawn apart or lose sight of. So many of us are drawn away from Jesus because of the things in our life. These folks had ideas about who the Messiah should be and what the Messiah should do. Jesus showed up and they didn't match their assumption about what the Messiah should do, and so they outright just rejected him. They were distracted. Others of us, it, it, it takes the form of a, of a different manner. It could be greed and wickedness, as we are notified at the end of the passage. It could be an adherence to a particular religious code. You see, in the end of the passage, Jesus is to dine with the Pharisee. He comes in and he doesn't wash his hands. And what there was is there was a difference between being dirty because you had you know, some dirt on your hands and being unclean. It isn't saying Jesus had been out there you know, with, with all sorts of filth all over his hands and so he was just eating with dirty hands. No, he walks in and the, un- the washing was a manner of distancing yourself from those who weren't like you. It was a manner of being more holy. And I, I believe Jesus goes in and intentionally doesn't wash his hands just to provoke them. Because what it tells us in verse 29 is that while Jesus' fame was increasing and these folks continued to gather, he looks at them and calls them a wicked or evil generation. He calls them a wicked 
or evil generation. You talk about clearing out of a room and not building relational capital. But he had understood who these people were, and it tells us in this text, this greater text, that he understood what was in their hearts. And because of their dismissal and their distraction and their doubt, they did not believe who Jesus was. And in that, Jesus attributes that to the hardness of their hearts. The hardness of their hearts. And that's something that we have to consider. Because there are a lot of things in life that can callous us to the gospel. I'll say this. Most of us probably weren't born in this area. We moved here a little over two years ago. This is a really hard place to follow Jesus. This, it's beautiful. We have the beach. We have all the, the luxuries of, of being a coastal town where people in their hard-earned money uh, that they, they save up all year, come and vacation, and through the course of their life want to retire. But there are a lot of things that are pulling us away from Jesus. A lot of things that are vying for our heart's affections. And when those seeds of doubt are, are planted and begin to germinate, what we begin to question is whether or not Jesus is all that good. We begin to be like those people who aren't satisfied with Jesus, but, but yet need something else. Lord, if you would just give me that promotion or that next sale. Lord, if you would just make this relationship work. Lord, if you would just help me in this situation. We, we start looking and, and assigning value to the things that God could do for us. And if he doesn't give them to us the way we want, well, we get a little jaded. We get a little frustrated. We begin to question his trustworthiness because he didn't show up the way we thought he should show up. You see, when we begin to dive in and diagnose these things, what we see about the generation that Jesus speaks that he calls wicked or evil is actually just as true of us today. You see, we have the Bible in far more abundance and even far more of it because these folks only had the Old Testament. And so we have more record of God's redemptive story at our disposal than they did. And yet we find ourselves in the very same situation as they were, where we doubt, we question, we're distracted, we dismiss. And we do that because our hearts, maybe once very fresh and, and tender towards Jesus over the years, rather than being more mature and equipped and, and falling more and more in love with Jesus and, 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 and being overwhelmed by the glory of God, we, we, we've just gotten ho-hum. And I believe what, what Jesus is calling us to is to, to consider those realities and to consider our own hearts. But see, this isn't a new problem. You see, Adam and Eve in the garden, they had walked with God. They had perfect fellowship in a perfect place. And then something else came in. They needed God plus to eat that fruit. And they began to doubt his goodness. They began to question his word. They began to dismiss what he said because Satan had come in and distorted it. 
And they took the fruit and they ate. And sin came into the world. And it hardened their hearts and made them spiritually blind. And then we look in on into God's redemptive narrative and we get into the story of the Exodus. The children of Israel are in Egypt. It was a miraculous work of God's providence in setting up Joseph so that we could uh, deliver this people. And after years and years and centuries of slavery, God moves in a mighty way, having heard the prayers of his people and hearing the prayers of his people, he moves. He sends ten plagues that they watch. And one of the recurring lines in Exodus in each of those plagues is it says, and they hardened, it hardened Pharaoh's heart. It hardened Pharaoh's heart. We, we see in the, the beginning of our, our bulletin, there's a quote from Charles Spurgeon. It's one that I've pondered for years. It says, the same sun which melt, melts wax hardens clay. The same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. I don't know how the Lord does this in his providence, but what we know is that it affects different people in different ways. And even there, we, we go through the story of Exodus and the, the people come through the Red Sea and God crushes Pharaoh's army and he sends them into the promised land. They, they reject God and his providence and his sovereign care and his power and his might because they see a certain people in Canaan and they say, oh, those guys are big. We can't go in there. And so they dismiss God. They're not faithful in honoring this God who's delivered them. And in that, they go into that space and, and they, they enter into a wandering. And what is the recurring line you see throughout Numbers? And God's people grumbled. They grumbled. And they're grumbling here in this passage, and they're grumbling today, and we're, some of us, even this morning, we're grumbling about who God is. And so what we need is we need to be reminded of who Jesus is. And in that, we need a declaration of the gospel. And so what Jesus does, and he's coming to these people, is he says, you want a sign? Let's talk about the sign of Jonah. Let's talk about the sign of Jonah. Jonah was an Old Testament prophet. Jonah was given a job to do. He didn't want to do it. He ran the other direction. He bought a one-way ticket to the opposite place that he was supposed to go. The Lord in Jonah's disobedience kicked up a storm. It, the text says it hurled or threw a storm upon this boat. At the end of the day, in, in a sense to relieve those within the boat, Jonah said, I've got a plan. We'll take this one step further. Just throw me over. You'll put me out of my misery, and I won't have to go to Nineveh. God, in his miraculous work, raises up a fish. This fish comes and swallows Jonah, and he lives in the belly of the fish for three days. Best part of the early service, the kid sitting right over there goes, what? And I said, you're right. <laughs> that is crazy. But it's not impossible for God. And so that's what God did. And he, then he moves the fish all the way to Nineveh and then spits him out upon the beach in a front row seat. And he walks in and preaches the shortest sermon in the Old Testament. 
He says, in 40 days, God will overthrow this place. And the entire city of pagan, liberal, heathen, idolatrous people who don't know squat about Jesus repent. And they tear their clothes and they, they, they throw sack or ashes and sackcloth and they repent and they want to know more about this God. Jesus, God incarnate, who didn't run the other way when given a job, took on flesh and came and tabernacled amongst his people, is coming and preaching good news about the kingdom and where these pagan heathens repented and tore their clothes and there was a mass revival like we've never seen, these people's hearts are hardened. Something greater than Jonah shows up and God's people don't believe. They, 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 they're just furious and they end up killing him. And like Jonah, he goes into the depths, the depths of death, and he's there for three days like Jonah was in that fish. And then Jesus comes out victorious. You see, the sign of Jonah was this horrible situation that he had gone through. And that he should have been dead, but he wasn't. And when he shows up, the people listen. Jesus, who died and rose and shows up, it tells us that there's a movement. 500 people believe, and then more so, thousands at the day of Pentecost, and the church expands through Acts. And so it's us today sitting in that space having to consider who Jesus is. The very fact that we have this Bible is, is a miraculous work of God's providence that has been preserved through uh, tumult and war and turmoil through all these years, and it gives us an accurate account of who He is. Isaiah 55, it says, God sends His word and it will accomplish what He intended. It will not return to Him void. What they are looking for is a sign and they've been given the word. And they don't believe it. But even that, Jesus goes on and He says, well, let's also take the Queen of Sheba. Sheba, or the south as it says in the text, is... There's some dis discrepancy, but it's either Ethiopia or Yemen, which are very close. One's at the south of the Arabian Peninsula, and one's on the east coast of Africa. There's just a little bit of water that separates them. And this lady hears about the fame of Solomon in 1 Kings 10 or 2 Chronicles 9, and she goes and moves thousands of miles to go and sit and, and, and hear and, and see the wisdom of Solomon. She heard an account. There's no record of her having been raised in a covenant home or receiving some sort of biblical education, but she is drawn to it. Jesus is telling them this because a pagan queen hears about the fame of Solomon and she comes and sits at his feet. Solomon's wisdom was derived. It was a gift, an answered prayer from God. Jesus himself is wisdom. He himself is God. His wisdom is greater than Solomon's. And he shows up, and they think he's crazy. To this very point, the Apostle Paul, in his letter, first letter to the Corinthians, wrote this. He said, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made the foolishness, has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, we gather each week in an assembly like this and someone like me stands up and talks probably longer than I should. And in that, what happens is we're preaching A man born in a town of ill repute, of a question, uh, a social pariah of sorts because of the nature of his birth. But there was divine reality in that, but Jesus was still an outcast. And Jesus came as an outcast to reclaim those who didn't know they were outcasts, to reconcile them and restore them to his father. He dies a criminal's death on a cross outside of Jerusalem. He's buried in a tomb that is not his, but was the mercy offering of someone else. And he raises victorious. You see, this isn't the way we would write the story. If we're writing a story of a liberator or a deliverer or a redeemer or savior, that's not the way we do it. We write a different story because this, this doesn't make sense. It only makes sense if we're called according to his purpose. And in there he talks about the light that is is lit and and the lamp that has been lit in this... uh, Lit, that's not a word, but I'll make it up. But but a lamp that has been lit that is in these homes would, would illuminate the whole place. And in that, what he says is you don't put it in the cellar or a basket over top of it. You see, the problem is that many of us have taken Jesus... When we learned him in a Sunday school or a Young Life camp or an FCA retreat or a youth retreat or whatever it is we learned it or wherever it was we learned it, and we've set that out as a a very prized thing, but over time, we've kind of put it away. It's it's in a box where we're not real sure. We show up to church and we're not real sure why we do it other than that's just what you do. We're not amazed by Jesus anymore. And so what Jesus is saying to these people is, you need to see me. I am the sign of Jonah. I am the one that is greater than Solomon. I am the one who provides light. As he says in John 8, I I am the light of the world. You see, Jesus is coming and he's, he's presenting himself and declaring the truth of the gospel, the good news of who he is and what he will do. And he's doing it so that we would believe. But what we also know from Scripture is, and what it tells us is that we won't figure it out on our own. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense. Large fish swallowing people, red seas parting, men who die or raised again on the third day. When you put it in those terms, it just makes us sound crazy. But the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men.
And we need the Spirit to be that uh, flame that lights the wick of the gospel in our hearts that brings illumination and we understand it. And friends, I'm here to tell you today, there are days when I sit here and I gather and I study this text and I go, you've got to be kidding me. But yet, time and time again, I'm like the disciples in John 6. Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Where else would I go? And so that's what we long to see. And so depending on where you're at, where you're at with that, that space this morning, what we long for you to see, what we pray that you interact with this, is that you'd be drawn to repentance as you consider Jesus. You consider the sin in your own life and how you need to repent of that. And what you need to know is that on the cross that Jesus paid the punishment for your sin. And that in that, it, the, the sin is removed and is no longer hardening our hearts or blinding our eyes, but is letting us see who He is. And from there, it gives us great wisdom. We, we return to the Word time and time again. And, and we submit ourselves to it. And, and it is true, and it is beautiful, and it is good. And, and, and if we obey it, God promises that we will have flourishing. It doesn't mean that we'll live cookie-cutter happy lives that Hollywood tells us we ought to believe. No, it offers us something greater. And from there, it, it draws us in that we would know the good news of Jesus, that we would see him. Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish pastor, said, for every one look you take at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. I submit to you today that's probably our biggest problem is that we are too concerned and self-referenced that we've stopped looking at Jesus. How often do we invite him when we're considering our finances, that sale, the next promotion, the next move, that next relationship? How often are we inviting the Lord into those spaces and truly making him Lord of our life? We dismiss him. We doubt whether or not He hears us or is working today. But friends, what we are assured of is that Jesus is ruling and reigning. And that He is working in a mighty way. And all of us are looking for something. We're looking for significance. We're looking for meaning. We're looking for purpose. But it's in Christ that we find it. I love that idea of the discipleship tree that Aaron was talking about. We sit and we give ourselves to so many things each day that won't matter a lick in a hundred years. But you think about all those things that we give ourselves to that that really are just going to rust and blow away. But in that, what we are called to is to commit ourselves in the hands of the Lord to do something with eternal significance. And so, friends, that's the call. That's the question. What what will we do? Will we dismiss Jesus as crazy? Or will we believe that He's Lord? Will we turn to the Spirit and say, I I can't make sense of this. I need your help. Will in our weakness be made strong through the one who was strong but became weak? It's a conundrum of sorts. But in that, what we believe is that we find Jesus, that we see Jesus, the promise of the new covenant, that our hearts of stone are removed and we're given hearts of flesh. And it's in that that we're able to move and breathe and live and function and we're transformed into things we never thought we would be. How sweet a story. Let's pray.
Our great God and King, we thank you for your mercy and grace. That you have loved us first, that you sought us while we were still enemies, that you display your love for us, and that you have died on the cross for sinners. Lord, you are making those sinners saints. Lord, we know that we are not as lovely as we ought to be, but Lord, we thank you that you have called us to serve the one who is most lovely. Lord, we pray that you would write the truth of your gospel upon our hearts and on our minds. Lord, where we disbelieve or we struggle or we're just in that next phase of going deeper into the gospel, Lord, would you give us what we need through your spirit. Lord, return us to your word and may it not uh, return to you void, Lord, but it would accomplish in our lives what you have desired for it to do. Father, would you hear these prayers and do immeasurably more than we could think or ask. Lord, all for the beauty and the glory of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.